When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. A listener note. This podcast contains strong language and disturbing content. It was New Year's Day, 1995. 4.12pm on Sunday the 1st of January, Inspector David Morgan. Word spread fast through Her Majesty's prison, Winston Green. At about 1.40pm today, Frederick West was found dead in his cell. Fred West was dead. We are assisting the prison to inform relatives at the moment. The prison governor and the Home Office faced a storm of criticism. How had Fred been allowed to cheat justice? The circumstances are being reported to HM Coroner and will be investigated by West Midlands Police. People were amazed that Britain's most notorious remand prisoner had been able to take his own life. Detective Superintendent John Bennett had specifically warned the prison governor that Fred was potentially suicidal. Yet, he had hanged himself. So what now? What would happen to Rose? I recognise the reporting of the death of Mr West is a matter of public interest. But the same public interest demands responsible reporting by the media to ensure the trial of Mrs West is not prejudiced. It's the end of that. From something else, this is Unheard, the Fred and Rose West tapes. Episode 10, The Trial. I'm Howard Soons, the author of Fred and Rose. Now that Fred had taken his own life, the focus turned to Rose. But the officer in charge of the investigation had concerns. I spoke to Detective Superintendent John Bennett in the days following Fred West's suicide. I hope you're feeling confident about a good outcome. I've, I've been a lot more confident on trials, I can say, over my service than I have over this. John Bennett was concerned that the media's coverage of the case would jeopardise Rose West's trial. Newspapers had been buying up potential witnesses, and Rose's lawyers would use that in her defence. You guys have really done a good job on me. Huh? Yeah. There's a few bad things happened, I'm afraid. But nothing, nothing, nothing new? Yes, yes, there are. You guys have... Wait, really what? What? I interfered with the witnesses. Who, or have we? Oh, but, what, brought them up? Yeah. Oh, blimey. What, who? Well, they have. Doesn't matter who. By now I was used to Mr Bennett's complaints about the press, but he seemed really worried this time. 
I think that uh, I've always obtained a pessimistic view because that keeps your metal up and makes yeah, you do your job. You're quite right. So I think that I, I shall retain my pessimistic view and just hope that uh, if the worst case scenario takes place, then I can say that we've done our best and it wasn't our fault. Meanwhile, Mrs West was entitled to a defence and someone had to defend her. Sasha Wass is now a leading lawyer, a QC and a judge. In 1994, she was a young barrister. In August of that year, my senior clerk asked me if I would go to visit somebody who was in custody at Pucklechurch Remand Centre. Um, I'd said, yes, I would. I didn't think anything of it. And he obviously knew about the case uh, and was, was having a bit of a, um, a joke with me and then eventually said it's a case called West. I hadn't paid a huge amount of attention to the detail. I knew there were a lot of bodies found in the garden of the house of a builder based in Gloucester. So I really went to Pucklechurch Remand Centre to meet Mrs West with a very scant knowledge of the background to the case. Sasha Wass joined the team defending Rose West. There were ten murder charges against her client, including the murder of Rose's daughter, Heather, and little Charmaine. But the evidence against Rose West was not as strong as it had been against Fred, who had confessed to the killings and said he acted alone. Sasha had a chance to try and stop the case at a preliminary hearing, If she was successful, there would be no trial. Rose would walk free. Mrs West had been so vilified in the press after the death of her husband, because, of course, the spotlight turned from him to her, and so many reports existed and had been circulated that would have prejudiced a potential jury that it was no longer possible for her to receive a fair trial. A committal hearing was organised to test the evidence before the country's senior magistrate. So, in February 1995, two months after Fred's death, the world's press descended on Dursley in Gloucestershire for the hearing. The entire village, because it wasn't even a town, was overrun with press, with um, vans, with satellite dishes... When Rose's prison van arrived, schoolchildren pelted it with eggs and shouted, burn her. Inside, a packed press gallery listened as Sasha Wass made her case that Rose should not stand trial. Although the press was allowed to attend the hearing, we couldn't report the details. The stakes were high, not just for Rose. If she didn't stand trial, it was likely that nobody would be tried for these crimes and the case would remain unresolved. The argument was uh, that there was direct evidence against Frederick West, he had confessed to the murders, but no direct evidence against Rosemary West, and the argument was that there was insufficient evidence for a case against her for murder to go to trial. 
Now, to be honest, as a member of the press, I guess we all we all wanted someone to be tried for this crime because we wanted a result, and I and, I, and that's a human emotion. It's, we also yes. have a vested interest in it. Did you see that in the press? V- that, v- very much so. I think not pressure. not only in the press. I mean, I knew when I was at court and I was putting forward the arguments. I was I was pushing an elephant up a hill. That doesn't stop you arguing things that you believe have substance. But from a non-lawyer's perspective, the public wanted closure. At the end of the hearing, the magistrate, Peter Badge, announced his decision. The result of the committal hearing was that Mrs West was committed for trial on all ten counts of murder and we started preparing the matter for a full trial. Of course, to some extent, you'd lost your battle, hadn't you? How did you feel Well, I'd lost round one. I'd lost round one. You never lose the battle until the very end. A date was now set. Rose West's trial would begin on the 3rd of October, 1995. The venue was Winchester Crown Court, about 90 minutes' drive from Gloucester, close enough to bring witnesses to court, but far enough to draw an impartial jury. Media interest was intense. With typical hyperbole, the tabloids were hyping this as the trial of the century. The preparations had begun two hours ahead of the trial. Hampshire police mounting their long-rehearsed plan to contain public interest and ensure public safety. 200 journalists and camera crews had spread out along approach roads, all hoping for a first glimpse of the woman who faces 10 murder charges. I booked into a local hotel and arrived at court early on day one to claim my seat. This will be my home for the next seven weeks. Rosemary West saw little of her short journey from Winchester Prison. Behind smoked glass and under heavy escort, she was inside the court within five minutes. Rose was brought into the dock of number three court, flanked by prison officers. Her court outfit was a dark skirt, white blouse and black jacket. A small cross hung around her neck. Her expression was impassive her fringe flopping over her spectacles. The jury was selected, eight men and four women. Sir Charles Mantell was the judge. Below him sat the defence team, led by Richard Ferguson, QC, with Sasha as his junior. They faced formidable opposition. The prosecution then brought in Brian Leveson, QC, as he then was, to lead the prosecution team. Um, And his uh, career was stratospheric. He went on to become a High Court judge, then a Lord Justice of Appeal, and of course um, became a household name after he conducted the Leveson inquiry. Sixteen years later, Sir Brian Leveson led his inquiry into press standards. The West case gave him experience of the excesses of the press. Despite losing the committal hearing, Sasha's defence team still had a fighting chance. The evidence against Rose was by no means clear-cut. There was no direct evidence against Mrs West at all. Nobody saw her involved 
um, with abusing any of the people whose remains were later found in Cromwell Street. Nobody saw her dismembering bodies. Nobody actually saw her having anything to do with most of them. And, of course, she constantly denied any involvement. And there was no scientific evidence, no forensic evidence. And there were huge question marks about it. In his opening speech, the prosecutor, Brian Leveson, explained to the jury that their verdict would have to be based on circumstantial evidence. Circumstantial evidence is where there is no direct evidence, but each strand of circumstances leads to the conclusion that the defendant must be guilty. And it's very much like a jigsaw, where you have 10, 20, 50 or 100 pieces, and each piece of itself can't be identified as a picture. But as you put each piece of the jigsaw together, you are eventually presented with a a, a full picture, and the prosecution say that full picture is a picture of the defendant's guilt. One of the most powerful strands of circumstantial evidence was the presence of nine murdered women at Cromwell Street. Most of us do not have dead bodies in our cellar or under our patio. Um, And very crudely, um, the finding of nine bodies in your house and garden calls for some sort of explanation. The prosecution case was heard first, and there were over 60 witnesses. Rose's mother, Daisy, was the first witness called to give evidence in person. I made a note at the time. She wears a grey jacket, speckled blouse, looks tiny as she sits down in the dock with the microphones all around her, does not look at Rose at all, speaks in her usual confusing, disconnected way in a timid little voice. I watched Daisy tell the court the same story she told me when I visited her at home the previous year, including the time Rose told her parents, there's nothing Fred won't do, including murder. She turned to her father, who stood there, and she said, you don't know him, she said, you don't know him, she said, nothing he wouldn't do, she said, including murder. Daisy said that she thought that Rose seemed frightened of Fred. Rose been 15 years old when she met Fred, Fred being 27, Fred already having been married, already having killed somebody there must have been a degree of Fred being in charge at first. He must have been the manipulative one, and Rose was actually terrified of him. Another early witness, Elizabeth Agius, told the court that Fred told her that he and Rose would cruise the streets, driving as far as London and Bristol, looking for young girls. Fred said it was better if Rose came too, because a woman in the car made it easier to pick girls up. On one occasion, Elizabeth asked Fred, where are you going tonight? Somewhere nice? And Fred replied, I am going out to see what I can find and bring home. Then a key witness entered the box, Caroline Owens, We heard her story in episode 8. She was the one that got away. 
Caroline Owens was a witness who had been picked up as a hitchhiker by the Wests in the early 1970s. She, although she had worked for the Wests for a while, on the occasion when she was picked up as a hitchhiker, she was taken back to Cromwell Street. On her account, she had been effectively held prisoner overnight in Cromwell Street. And according to her, she had been raped by Fred, viciously assaulted by Rosemary West, and had been the result of what you could only describe as torture. Now, the prosecution case was that many of the girls whose remains were found must have been picked up as hitchhikers, must have been taken back to 25 Cromwell Street. And given the fact that there were bindings found in the graves, such as tape, rope and the like, they must have also been held hostage in the way that Caroline Owens was held hostage. So that the prosecution said circumstance of Caroline Owens could help the jury draw a conclusion in respect of the circumstances of the deceased. Caroline's testimony was powerful, but then came the cross-examination. She was very composed, very clear and very strong, right until the end when she was re-examined. Richard Ferguson for the defence asked Caroline if she had done a deal with the media. This was what Detective Superintendent John Bennett had feared. Caroline had to admit that she'd been paid by the Sun newspaper. And she broke down and and said that she just wanted to do the right thing for the girls who hadn't made it. Among the many journalists covering the trial was Duncan Campbell of The Guardian. I think Caroline Owens was very honest in saying, you know, she did feel some guilt and I think a lot of the witnesses were tarred by their experience and found it difficult to to articulate. The people who had been living in that place, I think, had been terribly damaged both by their presence in the house at the time and by their own feelings about, oh, my God, what is there something else that we could have done? One of those people was former lodger Jill Britt, She was called as a witness, and she described the disturbing sounds she heard at Cromwell Street. I was a little bit apprehensive. All of a sudden, this person who was just screaming myth off at her kids was up for murder. And I've got to walk in, and she's going to see me after all these years. Yeah, yeah. No, she couldn't harm me. She was there. And you're like, whoa, it's a bit overwhelming. The girls who hadn't made it were the focus of the next set of witnesses, the court heard from family members who gave poignant insights into the victims. They included June Goff, the mother of Linda Goff, who told the court about knocking on the door of 25 Cromwell Street, only to find Rose wearing her daughter's slippers. This showed Rose caught in a key lie, initially telling Mrs Goff that Linda hadn't been there, then changing her story and saying she had gone away, leaving her things behind. In fact, she was dead and buried under the bathroom floor. 
You couldn't see anything because we were sat up here. The public gallery was packed with spectators, including the relatives of victims. She was literally right underneath the where we were sat in the balcony. Because I don't think I could have coped if I'd have been face-to-face with her. This is Belinda Mott, sister of Juanita Mott, one of the nine women buried at Cromwell Street. Watching from the public gallery, she recognised some of the West children who were sitting nearby. Anne-Marie and Stephen were stood the other side and everybody was sat in their own spaces. So I went over and said to their liaison officer, is it right if I speak to her? And they both put their arms around me and gave me a cuddle. And she said, you know, I'm really thankful and grateful that you did this. I said, well, you're as much of a victim as we are. When Anna Marie's turn came to give evidence, it was some of the most powerful testimony in the whole trial. Anna Marie was unmistakably Fred's daughter, with his broad nose and blue eyes. She spoke in a trance-like voice, leaving long pauses between sentences and often breaking down. The court listened in silence as Anna Marie described the sexual abuse she suffered at the hands of Fred and Rose from age eight. She was made to walk around the house with a vibrator inside her and to sleep with strangers. She was beaten, hit with knives and kicked in the face by Fred, which made Rose laugh. At 15, she miscarried Fred's child. Her evidence was damning, but what did it have to do with Rose committing serial murder? She did give evidence implicating Rosemary West, um, but the point that was made by the defence is that that is a big step from saying that the person who was engaged in what Anne-Marie described went on to kill, dismember the women who were found in the cellar. The court heard a lot about Rose's character. There was a lot of evidence in the trial from the prosecution that Mrs West was an aberrant, sort of strange and perhaps unpleasant person who wasn't a good, wasn't a good mother and had unusual sexual tastes. But uh, that didn't mean to say that she was a killer, did it? No, of course not. I mean, I think there were many witnesses who were... Um, riding on the crest of this wave of sensationalism, who were very happy to talk about Mrs. West's um, failings as a mother um, and possibly as a woman. But uh, that, that was a very far cry from saying she was a, a serial killer. So far, the trial had been harrowing. But the evidence against Mrs. West was all circumstantial and the prosecution seemed to have a long way to go to prove its case. A lot of us were were wondering, was there enough? You know, could she dodge it by blaming it all on Fred? And people, I think, were uncertain as to whether or not the jury would be convinced. Hold up. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I was at Winchester Crown Court covering the trial of Rose West, reporting daily for my newspaper and filling in the last gaps in my book. One day the jury foreman handed a note to the judge the jury wanted to visit 25 Cromwell Street. It was an unusual request, but Justice Mantell agreed. Elaborate arrangements were made. A coach was hired to transport the jury. The street was closed and screens were erected to allow the jury, judge and barristers to enter the house without being seen. The judge allowed a few members of the media to accompany the party. Names were drawn from a hat. I lost out in the lottery, but Duncan Campbell from The Guardian got lucky. I never win raffles or prizes or things like that. It was, it was, a, weird, it was a weird raffle to win. Duncan would compile what's called a pooled report. The deal is that you go in, you make your notes, you come out, you write it and you hand it to all of your colleagues. Duncan put on overalls and a hard hat and joined the judge and jury. They were led into the back of the house and taken in silence through each room, which had been stripped bare. White tape marked the location of human remains. The only sound was the clatter of press helicopters filming overhead. When Duncan saw inside the house, he gained a new perspective. There is no way that... Rose would not have been aware of what was going on in that house. It was very, very tiny, and you, the noises that people must have heard would, would be very obvious. Sasha Wass accompanied the jury through the house. The building work was really quite rudimentary, and although Fred described himself as a builder, I'm not sure he ever had planning permission for anything he did in that house. Witnesses described Fred installing a Caribbean bar. 
There was a mural on the wall, um, a bar at the front, and I think some of the optics were still there. Just as you might find on a sort of seaside resort in, in on a Caribbean island. Well, I mean, it was grimly depressing and, and sort of strangely funny at the same time that they, they that Fred had created this fantasy world for himself in which he had a sort of luxurious bar as though he was in Cannes or Barbados or something like that. Back in court, the jury heard tape recordings of police interviews with Rose. It was the first time that everybody had heard Rose's voice. In contrast to her demure appearance, she sounded harsh and belligerent. The police asked Rose on tape what happened the day Heather disappeared. She told them that she'd given her daughter money, then went shopping. She said, I come back, and she had gone. When detectives pressed her for details of where the money came from, Rose lost her temper. I cannot fucking remember, she shouted. What do you think I am, a bloody computer? If you had any brains at all, you could find her. As the search for Heather progressed, Rose told police that Fred had spoken to Heather since she'd gone missing. I know he had several phone calls off her, she said. She even said she had spoken to Heather on the phone since 1987, which was another key lie. When asked about the family joke about Heather being buried under the patio, she said, I didn't take no notice of it, did I? The police suggested it was impossible that murders could be carried out in the house without Rose knowing. Or I was sent out, she said, explaining that Fred often sent her out to see other men. This became her defence. That was the end of the prosecution. There will be fewer witnesses for the defence, but some big surprises. Few among us expected Rose to take the stand in her own defence. That would be very risky. But to our surprise... Richard Ferguson announced on Wednesday the 30th of October that his first witness was, indeed, Mrs West. I watched in fascination as she crossed the court to the witness box. Rose's legal team, including Sasha Wass, can't divulge their private conversations with their client, but my sources told me that Rose insisted on giving evidence against legal advice. She thought she could persuade the jury that she was innocent. She was questioned initially by her QC, Richard Ferguson, who led her gently through her life. She talked about her difficult family background, but reserved most criticism for her mother, not her father. She claimed to have been raped as a child by a stranger before being chatted up by Fred West at 15, she said, I suppose I fell for his lies. The questioning turned to Charmaine, the stepdaughter Rose was accused of murdering while Fred was in jail. 
she admitted that she struggled with the child, saying, Charmaine started resisting my care, but she denied abusing her. Then she was asked about the attack on Caroline Owens, who had described in court how the Wests assaulted her in 1972. Rose said, I just remember things got out of hand. I wanted it to stop. I believe I was as much a victim as Caroline was. Linda Goff was the next victim discussed. Her mother, June, had told the court that Rose had been wearing Linda's slippers when she came to the door at Cromwell Street. Rose said, it wasn't me. And she denied knowing the next four women to be murdered. Carol Ann Cooper, Lucy Partington, Therese Segenthaler and Juanita Mott. Back in the box the next day, Rose West was asked about her stepdaughter, Anna Marie, who had given such harrowing evidence earlier in the trial. Rose admitted losing her temper with the child, but insisted, I thought the world of her. Finally, she was asked about Fred. Rose claimed to have no idea that her husband was a killer. She told the court, I couldn't live with a murderer. It was now the turn of the prosecutor, Brian Leveson, to cross-examine Rose. His curt, incisive questions soon unsettled her. Rose had tried to pin all the blame on Fred, saying they'd led separate lives. Mr Leveson put it to her that their love letters proved they were in fact an exceptionally close couple. In the early 70s, Rose wrote, Sending all my love and heart, your worshipping wife. And as recently as 1992, she wrote to Fred, Remember, I love you always, and everything will be all right. Mr. Leveson then read out a letter about Charmaine. Rose wrote to Fred in prison that Charmaine likes to be handled rough. Then Brian Leveson questioned Rose closely about Heather. How could Rose have spoken to her daughter on the telephone when Heather was dead and buried in the garden. She said she thought it was her daughter's voice on the phone, but she couldn't be sure. It was a bad line. So far, Fred West had hovered over the trial like a ghost, but now Rose insisted that some of her husband's police interviews were played in court introducing his voice into the trial. Frederick West had admitted during his police interviews being involved and responsible for all 12 murders that he committed and the 10 murders that Rosemary West was accused of committing. Of course, Fred was dead... Um, and could not be a witness in the case. So the jury heard the voice 
of the man admitting killing these girls in gruesome circumstances and exonerating his wife. Fred went on to confess to many more murders, but he was vague and unreliable on detail. He couldn't name many victims. He contradicted himself, and much of what he said was obviously a sick fantasy. But the calm manner in which he spoke showed he was used to killing. Asked about Caroline Owen's abduction, Fred said this was his attempt to get Rose involved with what he called my sex life. Then came a revealing exchange with Detective Constable Hazel Savage. Fred told her that Caroline Owens didn't scream when the Wests assaulted her. Women don't always scream when they've been raped. They're terrified very often, replied DC Savage. Rubbish, said Fred. He said he'd never raped anybody. Detective Savage pointed out that he had murdered and his victims went through hell. A shiver ran through the court as Fred was heard to reply, No, nobody went through hell. Enjoyment turned to disaster. Because the defence had convinced the judge to allow Fred's police tapes to be played, the prosecution was allowed to call a new witness to counter what Fred had said on tape. That witness was Janet Leach, a voluntary worker who sat in on Fred's police interviews as his so-called appropriate adult due to concerns about his mental health and low intelligence. Janet Leach also became a frequent prison visitor and confidant to Fred. Janet Leach, who was the appropriate adult in the case, gave evidence that Fred West had told her, Janet Leach, that Rosemary was involved with the killing. So to that extent, her evidence was very important. Janet Leach's evidence looked like a heavy blow against Rose's defence. It indicated that Fred lied to police to protect her. During the time when the tape had been turned off and the police were not in the room, Fred West had confessed to Janet Leach that in fact, contrary to what he was telling the police, Rosemary West was very much involved in the murders. Under cross-examination, Janet Leach suddenly turned pale. It looked like she'd had a stroke. Court was adjourned, an ambulance was called, and she was taken to hospital. Overnight, Richard Ferguson and Sasha Wass received explosive new information. The defence were told halfway through Janet Leach's evidence that Janet Leach had in fact become involved in 
selling her story to a newspaper for a considerable amount of money. And Janet Leach had been asked uh, prior to this, prior to the defence being told this, uh, whether she had ever be- be- become involved in any sort of payment by the press and denied it. It transpired that Leach had been paid £12,500 by a subsidiary of Mirror Group newspapers to write a book. I must add that this had nothing to do with me. The book would be serialised for £100,000. Sasha's lead defence barrister, Richard Ferguson, jumped on this when Leach returned to court the following week. It was apparent and it was put to her that she had lied. And she came back to court in a wheelchair, do you remember? She came back in a wheelchair and was a completely different Broken woman. Person, a completely different yeah. person. The police felt badly let down by Janet Leach's secret newspaper deal and the judge came close to throwing the whole case out of court. But on reflection, he allowed the trial to continue. It would be up to the jury to decide on the credibility of Janet Leach. In his closing speech, Prosecutor Brian Leveson said, We have travelled to a place which plums the depths of human depravity. The Wests were the perfect companions and did it together. On that basis, you can be sure that the allegations are proved. Wrapping up for the defence, Richard Ferguson admitted Rose may have lied and been a bad mother, but he said there was no hard evidence that she had killed anyone. Ryan Leveson had this metaphor that he was leading the jury up a path and Richard Ferguson said, well, imagine this is a mountain path and there's a crevasse in front of you and that Brian's on the other side. So Brian's on the other side and he's inviting the jury to jump across to what is essentially a guilty verdict on the other side. And he and Richard Ferguson told the jury repeatedly, don't jump. These are his closing words, don't jump. Don't listen to siren voices. Don't add another wasted life. Whilst he was speaking, you thought he was right. So I was, I, I was probably worried that the, you know, she's going to get off. I probably went back to my hotel room thinking, you know, full of doubt and fear and trepidation. Waiting for a jury is like going into no man's land. You try to distract yourself and do other things, but you can't actually get out of your mind the fact that you're waiting for a decision, which is probably the most important decision that the defendant will um, await any time in their lives. The jury deliberated over two days. The corridor outside Court 3 was the waiting room for journalists, police and lawyers... People paced about nervously while the air filled with cigarette smoke. Finally, a tannoy voice requested that anybody involved in the case of Rosemary West should return to Court 3, and we scrambled for our seats. The 
The trial of Rosemary West, who was accused of murdering ten girls and young women, has ended with her being found guilty on all counts. The public gallery at the court in the southern town of Winchester erupted in cheers when the judge sentenced her to life imprisonment and said she should never be released. I watched Rose while Justice Mantell sentenced her. She showed no emotion. But when she was taken down to the cells, she collapsed. Outside the court, her solicitor, Leo Goatley, gave a statement. My client is totally devastated. She wept uncontrollably after hearing the verdict of the jury. She continues to maintain her innocence and retains the love and support of her children. She contests the verdicts and we are actively pursuing an appeal on her behalf. The trial was draining for Sasha Wass, hearing the evidence for weeks. While Sasha was defending Rose, that didn't mean she wasn't moved by the stories. Most of the killings took place in the early 1970s, and the victims were in their early teens. They were actually contemporaries of mine, and I can remember growing up in that time and the um, way that I felt about life and feeling how sad that they had lost their lives and never got an opportunity to take them any further. So I, I did feel an affinity. The witnesses who spoke of the victims really spoke of an era which was very relaxed and, and people were becoming less conventional. And to that extent, they had this optimism about life. And then you suddenly saw the nasty side of that and how people who were more relaxed about their own safety had been taken advantage of. To lose any case for a barrister is a professional disappointment. By the end, she felt exhausted. In a case, normally, you go home and you lead your ordinary life and do domestic chores and all the rest of it. And it keeps you sane, in a way, and keeps you grounded. We were all living in a world um, of rather grisly evidence. I know that the jury were offered counselling. I don't know if any of them took it. We were offered counselling. Um, and there was an understanding that really, no matter how tough you try to be, we are actually human beings and people don't become involved in the subject matter of m multiple murders uh, uh, without any adverse effects to their mental state at all. Did you take counselling? No. No. And you were kidding? I went back to the dishwasher, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, 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 I didn't take counselling. I don't want to talk about no, why no, not. No, no, I, no yeah, no, I didn't, no. As for Rose, she was taken to a high-security prison as a convicted mass murderer and one of the most notorious prisoners in British history. Almost immediately, she requested leave to appeal, still protesting her innocence. We'll hear more about what happened next in the final episode in this series. As Rosemary West begins a lifetime in prison tonight, she alone knows what horrors were suffered by the women she killed. There's no sign that she's now willing to admit what happened to them, even to herself. Next time on Unheard, the Fred and Rose West tapes, Marion Partington, her attempt to forgive Rose West for killing her sister. 
Unheard, the Fred and Rose West tapes, was written and presented by Howard Soons. The producer was Paul Smith. The executive producer was Russell Finch. The mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. The title music was composed by Shani Aviram, with additional production from Steve Ackerman, Antonia Udunlami, Ben Maidley and Alice Lutchins. Unheard, the Fred and Rose West tapes is a something else production. Also from something else. How did we get here? With Claudia Winkleman and Professor Tanya Byron. In these in-depth one-on-one therapy sessions, we dig deep into personal stories with fascinating and emotional revelations. A passionate, insightful and moving experience with clear outcomes to each episode. He is as anxious about attachment with you as you are with him. Oh, wow. That's crazy, isn't it? Oh, that's a weird feeling. Wait, so... Oh, God. Don't you just feel like, whoa, why didn't I know that all along? Listen now in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all good podcast apps. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.